Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Catherine Mangue Ward, the uh, editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Catherine, why is capitalism a blessing? I think there's a lot of ways to, to think about capitalism, but the one that appeals to me the most is just to think about it as a system that is based on voluntarism. Unlike almost any other economic system, the goal is to make as much space as possible for people to make the trades they want to make. And it's a blessing when you can make your own choices and do what you want to do and live your life and design it as much as possible to your own specifications. But what, 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 it's not entirely voluntary, is it, in the sense that if, if you're born into a capitalist system, you have no choice, you can't opt out? Well, I mean, in fact, you can opt out and people don't. I, I think that's actually a really important point, that there are, there have been systems where people genuinely, when they are born into them, cannot leave. North Korea uh, is, of course, the most uh, extreme example. But in fact, what we see is that in capitalist countries, people want to come here. You can opt out. You can move to places that have other economic systems and people by and large No, don't. I think you misunderstood my question. Uh, um, you can't opt out of capitalism, the, 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 the exchange of goods and services. If, if, if you live in the United States, for example, you have to participate. So it's not, um, it, it's not entirely a matter of choice, is it? I mean, I guess you could go and live in North Korea or well, yes, but, but I mean, to the to the spirit of your question, it's true, of course, that if you live in a country governed by a capitalist system, if the if this economic system is capitalism, you're going to be a participant in it. At the same time, you can opt out in ways uh, that are I think there's a broader expanse of ways that you can opt out in a capitalist system than in others. So, for instance, uh, you can choose to work only minimally. You can choose to work just enough to make enough to survive on. In the United States version of capitalism, there are, of course, many uh, welfare programs and subsidies. They are wildly imperfect, but they do exist. Um, in socialist systems or in other systems that are centrally, more centrally controlled economies, they typically frown on even that level of opting out. Typically, people are sort of dragooned in to use their talents for a centrally organized system. I, that's not true in capitalism, or at least not to the same extent. Why do you think capitalism now has become um, a controversial subject? Why are more and more people uh, inside and outside the United States questioning 
the very nature of capitalism? I mean, I think part of it is, of course, like all implementations of all systems are imperfect. And our current version of capitalism in the United States in particular is, you know, I think it has been distorted from the version that I would like to see. So even though I am a strong advocate for capitalism and I genuinely do think it is the best system for organizing an economy, the American version right now is what I would call crony capitalism. Uh, and the, you know, there are two ways to look at the relation between a very large state and very large companies. And one is to say the companies are too large. The other is to say the state is too large. And that's what I would say. I would say right now there, there's so much power to capture in Washington that it's not surprising that uh, players in the market would be looking to gain access and political power in Washington, D.C., in the government um, I think that distorts the system. I think it winds up producing, obviously, bad outcomes for ordinary people. I think that's a, not a controversial point, right? Nobody likes crony capitalism. So you're saying then that contemporary American capitalism isn't a blessing, that it has a fundamentally problematic structure, that you call it crony capitalism. How does that work? What does it mean? And so I, I actually disagree with what you just said. I, I do think modern American capitalism is a blessing. I do think that the, the, it is... The, the crony element you, you're suggesting is, is distorting it, undermining it, corrupting yeah. it? I mean, sometimes good things get corrupted by a bad element, and th that's what is the case here. I mean, this is, you know, at Reason Magazine, we say our motto is free minds and free markets. Um, there's a reason that we don't always lean into the word capitalism as a word, and we haven't, um, you know, for the 50 years that we've been around. Um, we do like the capitalist system, but what we like are markets. We like free trade. We like open exchange of goods and people and ideas. And in the places in modern American capitalism where that's being constrained by the government and by the government, sometimes at the behest of uh, big businesses, but sometimes at the behest of other types of interests, uh, that's what we fight against. Give me some concrete examples of crony capitalism, the kind of companies or individuals who are corrupting American capitalism? Sure. So, uh, I mean, one sort of classic example is agriculture subsidies. Um, the In the United States, we have uh, a coalition of people who like the idea of farmers. Um, these are not people who personally stand to gain, but who just um, want to do what's right for farmers and the actual people whose bottom lines are affected. Those people come together. They advocate for massive, massive subsidies to the agriculture sector, which in the end make prices go up for everyone and hurt people abroad who could grow those goods at a lower price and make a better lives for themselves. Uh, that to me is a great example of to remove those subsidies, to remove essentially welfare to large farms would be an improvement. It would make the system more capitalist. It's not, again, that this is somehow baked into capitalism. There are lots of sectors where this doesn't happen. Um, but this is one where there's there's been um, there's been a failure that could be fixed. Isn't there a contradiction though in supporting perfectly free markets and being opposed to lobbying? After all, free markets lend themselves to a winner-take-all economy. Big companies outside agriculture, you know, the Googles and the Amazons and the Apples of the world, and when they become trillion-dollar companies, they're inevitably going to have huge amounts of money to spend lobbying government. How do you square those two things? Again, the place I come back to is there should be less to lobby. A smaller state, a smaller government that has less control over the economy 
isn't a prize to be won. If you imagine a very, very minimal state that doesn't meddle in these type of questions, that doesn't subsidize or penalize or otherwise interact with the agriculture sector at all, I think then you have a version of capitalism that's more functional for ordinary people and that isn't distracting for entrepreneurs. I mean, this is something that we uh, that I think we undervalue, that there are very, very smart people who have started uh, world-changing companies and the fact that they all end up playing politics because government is so big and they can't avoid the threat of regulation, that's a waste of their talents. I would much rather have those well, who, people... Who are you thinking of? Jeff Bezos? I mean, I think Jeff Bezos has actually avoided it more than most. Um, well, even though he bought a newspaper. But I don't, I mean, I actually think that the newspaper question is a bit separate. I'm talking about very explicit lobbying for, mm. I mean, the Import-Export Bank. I'm talking about agriculture subsidies. I'm talking about manufacturing subsidies. I'm talking about trade barriers. I mean, heavy industry is much, much more um, invested in this way of doing business than the, the tech sector. Are you troubled, though, with uh, an unregulated economy that results in in winner-take-all companies like Apple and Google and, and Microsoft? Again, I just question your framing there. I don't I don't. You think... don't buy that idea? You don't buy the idea of a winner-take-all economy? No, I think, you know, Even Apple... though these are trillion-dollar companies? I mean, Apple and Google produce things that people want and people give their money for those things. Uh, winner-take-all implies that there's a zero-sum system in place, and I just don't think that's the case. But they are winner-take-all companies. I mean, these are they're dominating their markets. Uh, Facebook dominates social media. Uh, Amazon dominates e-commerce. Those are economic realities, aren't they? I, I, again, I'm not sure what dominate means in this scenario. It's, so you reject you can, the idea of a winner-take-all economy? I do. I think it's a rhetorical trope used by people who think that bigness is bad. I don't think Perhaps bigness, it's though because you don't like the outcome. It's Because it that, sort of, it doesn't square with your view of the world or of capitalism. I I think that capitalism has the power to give people what they want. And I think that even when a company is big, as long as no one is forcing you to do business with that company, and even when it's even when Facebook is big, you're not forced to be on Facebook, that's a crucial difference. That is a huge difference between the way economies are structured in capitalist systems and other systems. You can opt out. So I'm not even going to waste your time or my time talking about issues like antitrust, I assume that you're strongly against them, that you don't think these, whether we call them winner-take-all companies or trillion-dollar companies, that they shouldn't be broken up, that, I, that the role of the state should be minimal. I think when there's fraud, I think when there's theft, of course, it's appropriate for the state to intervene. I do think, broadly speaking, antitrust doesn't have a stunning record of correctly targeting the real threats to economic liberty. I think they, it can often be a politically motivated question about even which late nineteenth century stuff. And I think, by and large, even very powerful large companies do collapse. If you look at the record of, um, you know, who's on who's on the richest people in America list uh, fifty years ago, twenty years ago, ten years ago. Those those lists do turn over quite rapidly. Same with the you know the companies with the largest market capitalization. Um, that list doesn't look anything like it looked 20 years ago here. To me, that implies that uh, the specter of an, a dominant monopoly that never breaks unless the government intervenes is simply not how it actually but functions. But you would reject the value of antitrust legislation against the, the oil companies and the banks in the last part of the 19th century. You would say that, that that was a mistake? I think there are so many ways that 
that government can act appropriately to check companies that are that are uh, behaving unethically or that are behaving criminally. I don't think antitrust is a good tool. And again, I think that broadly speaking, the idea of uh, big business and big government working together, I want people to look at the ways that um, the government is the is the problem here. When you have the possibility of using force to bring people either to force them to buy your products or to push out your competitors, um, to me, that's the unethical thing. Are you troubled with the fact that in, in your world of minimal government, um, sort of absence of most kind of regulation, that these, I use this term winner take all, you might reject it, but very powerful, very dominant companies can shape policy even outside sort of traditional lobbying channels. Uh, for example, uh, Amazon and, 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 and Warren Buffett now have some interesting initiatives on healthcare, which are kind of bypassing government. Is that something that worries you or is it something that you think is healthy? I mean, I think healthcare in the United States is a sector that is much more dominated by government intervention than almost any other sector, right? This is not, I don't think anyone would say what we have right now is a free market in healthcare. And I think that entrepreneurs and innovators are recognizing that it's a real problem and trying to figure out a way to fix it. I think- So capitalism could be the solution to, to an issue like healthcare rather than the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So the private markets can can fix it uh, and if fact, government steps back. And in fact, I think, you know, you do see that already in lots of other areas. There are always people looking to kind of innovate around a place where the state has failed. I mean, a long time ago, people used to talk about the post office, right? Everyone hated waiting in line at the post office. It was a model of a bad government agency. And uh, libertarians and people who like free markets used to talk about privatizing the post office. Maybe we could make it more like a company. We could make it better. But what actually happened is that the post office is now perfectly irrelevant because we had fax and then email and now text and a thousand other ways to communicate. And I think that's a perfect example of sometimes the state fails and sometimes the market steps in and it doesn't have to be a direct political conflict. They just figure out a way to do it better. When did you last go to a post office? Oh my God, how long has it been? I, because you don't need it. That's exactly the well, idea. You may not, but I go every week and there are still lots of people who use it to, sell, to, to send parcels and letters. And of course, you know, the idea that you can now physically send a letter through two or three different private agencies in the United States is also true. Uh, but, but I think, again, the idea here is it's not to say there's no purpose for the post office, but to say when something is going badly, when when government interference in a sector or government monopoly, the post office is a monopoly, was originally a monopoly, um, provides bad service, I think it makes absolute sense to look to innovators who operate in the private markets to see if they can do better. What about the issue of the economic inequality that uh, an unregulated capitalism seems to um, trigger? I mean, would you accept that? So I think, you know, inequality obviously is a very hot issue right now. A lot of people are talking about um, what levels are allowed or acceptable. Um, to me, you know, my first question in any conversation about inequality is if we are looking to reduce inequality, are we in the end hurting the people who are the worst off? And I think it's a counterintuitive notion. And so I understand why people want to push back on that. But 
if you look at the condition of the poorest people globally, especially in places where capitalism is more or less the dominant economic system, poorer people are objectively better off. Richer people are sometimes even more better off, but it's, it's not clear to me that that's where our moral claim should rest. The, different, the thing that matters isn't the difference between rich and poor. The thing that matters is, are people starving? Are people, at the, are people at the very bottom suffering? And I think capitalism, by and large, improves the lot of the people at the very bottom so much that to undervalue that and to put so much weight on inequality really misses the point. It may, in your mind, miss the point in a sort of quantifiable sense, but tell the angry farmer or manual laborer or, or factory worker that. I mean, isn't it more than just about um, actual inequality? It's about perceptions. And people's anger seems to be reshaping politics, people's sense of the unfairness of capitalism. I mean, that's a reality, whether you like it or not. Would you accept that? Sure, I absolutely agree that the fight over inequality is playing a huge role in U.S. politics. So what's your politics. solution to tell people that they're actually well off when they think they're not? Well, I think, I, think it's, I think it's absolutely worth trying to have this conversation in public where we say, okay, uh, I, get, you know, I get it that people are troubled by inequality. Let's look at what that really means in the world. I also think, though, the, the sort of next layer up is to talk about whether the kind of zero-sum thinking that's often that drives that idea is correct. And I, I do think people have a capacity to understand economic systems. People want to understand economic systems, and they make these choices on their own all the time. People leave their family farm and go to the city to work in a factory, even though that's still a very hard life, because it looks like a better life to them. They say, I can, I can do more for myself. I can do more for my family. Um, they leave poorer countries, which are often more centrally controlled and come to richer companies, uh, countries like the United States. I, I just, I think the inequality debate is hugely dominant in our politics, but I think, again, this is a problem with our politics, not a problem with capitalism. But it, it is a problem with capitalism, isn't it? Take the example of Amazon, where you have a company, a very successful company, brilliantly run. Um, Jeff Bezos is worth, depending on the, the, the market price of of Amazon, something you know, above $100 billion, maybe $150 billion, uh, richest man not only in the world, but in the history of the world. And then you have people working incredibly hard for minimum wage, some of them dying on the job. Some of them are very angry, and many people think that that's unfair. How would you respond to that? I think that the question of, you know, should Jeff Bezos be allowed to be so rich in many ways is the central question of our politics right now. Is it a legitimate um, question? And you know, I think even Jeff Bezos has confronted that question. And one of his answers is, no, I'm going to give a lot of my money away. And I think the other proposal, which is someone else should decide how he gives his money away, someone else should take his money and give it away, um, is, not, is not, to my mind, necessarily a better one. Again, these are, these are you know, people in Washington who most of us don't really trust to make good decisions in lots of areas. I don't think people... You know, uh, approval ratings for the U.S. Congress have been in single digits for an awfully long time. And, you know, I, I think the idea that we can somehow um, improve the lot of the Amazon worker by punishing Jeff Bezos is so misguided. There is no job at Amazon at all without Jeff Bezos. And to, to look over that and just say, well, now these numbers are so different 
really is misguided. So Amazon works. You don't have any problems with the kind of inequality between uh, people who, who are worth $100, $150 billion and people working on the shop floor. Do you think that um, firms need to be re-architected? I mean, there are more and more socialist or perhaps even Marxist thinkers out there who are suggesting that we need to democratize the firm, the corporation. The workers need more rights. What's your response to that? Do you want to wait for the printer? Yeah. yeah. Who's doing that? Can you ask them? Claire, you, you, are you using the printer? Do you want me to repeat the question? Sorry. No problem. I can't remember what it was now. Yeah, I think you, it was it was the question about um, you know it was the thing that come the stuff that came up last night about um, uh, rearchitecting the firm. Do you want me to repeat it, or are you good on it? Uh, yeah, why don't you go ahead and reask? Okay. Um, so, Catherine, there's more and more thinking on the left about re-architecting the firm, the corporation, to give workers more rights, to democratize American capitalism. What's your feeling on that? I think the idea of uh, a few people in charge in Washington or a few socialist intellectuals saying, we have a better idea about how to build firms is unfortunately just kind of an ahistorical point of view. Uh, the fact is the United States has a capitalist system, it is imperfect. There are many ways it could be improved. But when you look at the firms that are so often the target of this ire, firms like Amazon, firms like Apple, uh, I just think it's so important to remember that those firms, the choice isn't rearrange those firms according to some ideal socialist principle or, uh, or have what we have now. The choice is in a system where, where the firms are re-architected, as you say, which is, uh, which is a very euphemistic word. Uh, Apple and Amazon just don't exist at all. The Jeff Bezoses of the world, the Steve Jobs of the world face a very different set of incentives. And I, for one, don't want to live in a world where that kind of innovation is How do you know? How harder. do you know that they wouldn't exist? Well, mostly because the place where these innovative firms, and especially in the tech sector, exist is here in the United States. Uh, but many of the... Which, many of the... Um, Many of the most powerful tech executives and CEOs are actually in favor of re-architecting capitalism. Mark Benioff, for example. Uh, Steve Jobs was less political. Uh, but there, there, is a, there is a sense, I think, in Silicon Valley that something's gone profoundly wrong. Not everyone agrees, but, 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 but most people in Silicon Valley are on the left. Most people, I think, would, would, would acknowledge there's a big problem here. So this, I think, is one of the, this is what I would call crony capitalism, is the point where a firm gets successful and begins to do rent-seeking. They begin to collaborate with legislators, with powerful people, um, to write regulations which they might say, hey, listen, we agree with you, capitalism is too unconstrained, we need to write some rules. But isn't it a coincidence how those regulations always wind up benefiting those firms? Again, so I don't think the problem you, is with the firms. That, uh, I think the problem is with the state, which ena enables that kind of behavior and even incentivizes it. So you're saying that a Mark, Z a Mark Benioff is a crony capitalist? I think, I think that tech executives who are 
on Capitol Hill saying, I would love to work with you to regulate my sector, are not champions of markets. They're not champions of business. And they are perhaps ultimately foes of capitalism. Do you think that a CEO could conceivably be moral, that they, they might want to improve the nature of society and undermine some of their own economic interests? Or are you suggesting that you seem to be suggesting that everyone is driven by this pure economic interest? So if they are reformers, they're almost inevitably crony capitalists, that there's something dodgy about them? You know, of course, people are motivated by many different things. And I, I think that often people do believe their own rhetoric and that you can be both morally motivated and financially motivated. I think that's true, by the way, of CEOs in their own business outside of the political system. You can believe you're making the world a better place with your product and hope to make a lot of money with it. So, of course, it's not uh, in contradiction to be a moral person and to be a profit seeker. At the same time, I think the moral failing comes when you want to force other people to behave in a certain way. There's a big difference between I'm going to make something I think it'll make the world better and I'm going to sell it and people can buy it or not versus I'm going to write the rules for my competitors. And that's where I think we need to be on the lookout. So anyone trying to reform capitalism is, in your mind, suspicious. Oh, good heavens. That's absolutely not what I just said. I just said there are many, many ways that capitalism can be improved. I am trying to reform capitalism, right? I run a magazine where we write stories all the time about the ways in which the government structures around capitalism are distorting it or making it a less good version of itself. Reforming capitalism can be, should be something that's on many people's minds. But I think we should be wary of the idea that the only way to improve capitalism is to fence it in and to give more power to people in Washington or other capitals to control markets. I don't think that that is the only solution or the best solution. What about the role of technology in reforming not, not technologists or even Silicon Valley companies, but the role of technology, distributed currencies, for example, or sharing platforms like Airbnb and Uber. Do you think that could be a way of re, I use, you know, we're using this euphemism, re-architecting capitalism that, that would make you more comfortable? Sure. I think there is something to be said for systems that are harder to regulate. And that's what's true about many of these decentralized currencies. It's also what's true about the gig economy more broadly, although lots of people are trying to regulate it. Uh, I think, you know, it's not a coincidence that some of the most exciting innovations in corporate structure have been in the direction of uh, devolving control and devolving power away from a central management that's not only because that's what workers are demanding. It's also because it's you know there there is a, a constant threat of of regulation. There is a constant threat of being shut down. And if you can build a system that's harder to shut down, that's appealing. Do you think the state should control currency? Do you think that cryptocurrency, that maybe something like Facebook's Libra, would be a better way of managing economic policy? I think. Purely through the market as opposed to central government and a central bank. I think it's a pretty exciting idea. I like competition in a lot of areas of life. And I think currency is a place right now where there's relatively minimal competition and it's dominated by states. So I'd like to see more players. Is there anything you think the state does well? Sure. I mean, I think there there's an, a role for the state in enforcing contracts. I think there's a role for the state in preventing violence and theft. Um, you know, I think there, there are some very, very clear places where uh, having rule of law and clear property rights make everyone better off, and the state has a role in that. At the same time, I think very broadly, 
people look to the state far too often to fix problems when it, in fact, is going to make them worse, uh, just as um, you know, people sometimes look to, um, you know, look to entrepreneurs to solve their problems when, um, when all they can do is make the best product they can make and see if you want to buy it. You're speaking very much from an American point of view. There are two rival economic systems out there. The first is the European one, which has strong regulation and is uh, sort of market, I don't know whether you would call it market socialism or democratic capitalist uh, statism of some sort. And you also have, which, which I assume you're, 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 not, you're uncomfortable with, but you also have the Chinese model of an aggressive statist capitalism, which seems in many ways to be more competitive and successful than America. What do you make of the Chinese model? I'm delighted that markets have come to China. It's certainly, again, a wildly imperfect system, certainly not a system that I would describe as capitalist at this point. But Why not? Well, for one thing, because there's still massive, massive state control of huge sectors of the economy, much more so even than in American or European systems. Uh, I so for you, capitalism requires what a, a certain uh, freedom of the market, a, a, an absence of state control, yeah. even though China is increasingly becoming you know, the richest and the most economically successful country in the world? I, I am delighted by the growth in China. I think it's largely a, uh, a proof point for those who think that capitalism and markets are a, a way to not only improve people's economies, but also improve people's political lives. I mean, China is, is very much mid-evolution and it could go a lot of different ways, but economic liberty and personal liberty are intertwined. Um, Why do you say that? What's your evidence? Well, I think just on the very, very simplest level, what you do with your money and with your property is often uh, very closely intertwined with your your personal choices. But that's not a reality in the world today. The most successful, as I said, the most successful economic systems are Singapore and China, where those two things don't coexist. Well, those, those are systems where, that are growing quite rapidly. But again, I still think that the, uh, the reason that they are growing is the extent to which they're becoming more capitalist. And I, I would like to see that continue. Uh, I also think that there's really um, a huge amount of opportunity for um, cooperation between countries that have functioning capitalist markets. And I'm you know, terribly sad that at this point uh, we are in this country choosing to engage in trade wars left, right and center. Uh, I would I would much rather see cooperation. I think it would be better for, again, the people who are the least well off in all of these places. But you don't fear the Chinese model. You don't fear this marriage of free market capitalism and political authoritarianism. You don't think that has legs for the 21st century, that it's not going to win out. I, I would certainly not make predictions. I think, again, the Well, you're a journalist. You're in the business of making no, predictions. No, a smart journalist is absolutely not in the business of making predictions. We're in the business of describing what's happening right now. And I think what's happening right now is exciting. I think- Even in China? Even in China. But I think it could go terribly wrong, just as here in the US, as we see a growth of collaboration between big business and big government, the kind of crony capitalism that I would uh, that I lament. Uh, I I am always on the lookout for ways to grow the sphere of free markets and free trade, and um, and I hope that I hope that that's the direction China is going, and I hope that's the direction that the United States is going. Well, it isn't in China though. 
I mean, that's a reality. You say you don't want to make predictions, but, but China is going in a direction which is antithetical to what, to what you want. I, I think it remains to be seen.